Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, welcome to this new episode. I have found or refound or rediscovered my interest slash love for astronomy and big telescopes. So in this episode, we are going to look at the Event Horizon Telescope. Um, our guest is Heino Falke. He'll introduce himself in a moment. Um, you have probably all heard about the fact that they took a picture of the Event Horizon of M87 Star. Um, and uh, so, well, we'll... We'll learn all the details in this episode. Um, there will be a few other episodes upcoming on astronomy-related topics. I have recorded something on the radio telescope in Effelsberg, and I have something on the control, basically approach for the multi-segment mirror of the ELT telescope. We've had an ELT episode before, and so that's kind of a um, part two. Before we get started, uh, we should briefly talk about the listener meetup between Omega Tau airline pilot Guy and Come Fly With Us. Uh, I had previously announced this to be on 21 September, Saturday, in Frankfurt. All of this is also still true. Um, Nick will be there, Oli will be there, Steffen will be there, myself will be there, and potentially there is some hope slash plan slash rumor that Jeff might also fly over from the US, which would be cool. Um, All of it will happen in easy public transport reach of Frankfurt Airport. We'll uh, get a tour of the airport in the afternoon. Nothing special, basically the normal tourist tour, but should be fun in, in that kind of group setting. And um, in the evening, we'll have the kind of usual party kind of thing. All of it, again, we, we have, we've reserved a, a kind of a room in a, in a pub in Raunheim. Details to be announced soon. Um, so that's all in easy reach uh, by, you know, few stations, um, relative to um, Frankfurt Airport. So all kind of centrally located in Germany and easy to reach. All right, so one more thing I should mention, which is in the episode, Heino talked about continental drift and he wasn't quite sure about the magnitude. And so he asked me to look it up. And so the drift between Europe and Africa is 2.5 centimeters per year. So, um, well, now we can get started with Heino's introduction. Heino Falke, professor at the Radboud University and professor of uh, radio astronomy and astroparticle physics. All right. And you are or have been and probably still are involved in the EHT? Yes. So, <laughs> I'm the chair of the Science Council of the Event Horizon Telescope. Um, and I'm also the managing PI of the Black Hole Cam project, which is actually a major source of funding for the EHT Uh, over the last few years, that was a grant given by the European Research Council uh, together with uh, Luciano Rezzola in Frankfurt and uh, Michael Kramer in Bonn. All right. So and we're going to talk about uh, the EHT, but in order to get there, we have to explain a couple of details and basics. And so that's why we're going to start with a very brief recap of what radio interferometry is. The main point is that radio astronomy has a very poor resolution, right? The um, resolution of a telescope is given by lambda over D, where yep. lambda is the wavelength, and D is the size of the telescope. And that's just given by simple optics, the diffraction limitation that a telescope has. Um, a single dish, by the way, gets a factor of 1.22. Uh, still, a deformator has a resolution of lambda over D. Um, so in radio astronomy, lambda, the wavelength, is uh, centimeters, yeah. uh, millimeters. 
And uh, in optical, where we use our eye, uh, we are talking about uh, a few hundreds of nanometers, you know, 400, 500 nanometers um, wavelengths. So you get the same resolution in the Effelsberg radio telescope, if it observes a gigahertz frequency, as you get with your naked eye. Yeah. Though the telescope is, is so much bigger, but also the wavelengths are so much larger. So everything in radio astronomy has to be larger because the wavelengths are large if you want to get resolution. And so you can build telescopes much larger than the 100-meter dish in Effelsberg, which is a freely steerable dish, 100 meters in size. Uh, There's a Green Bank telescope, which is, I think, 101 meter effectively in size. Guess why? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a meter bigger then. (laughs) But it means there's a a physical limit. Yeah. Um, there is, of course, the non-steerable dishes in, in Arecibo and now in China, the FAST telescope, mm-hmm. uh, which are built into uh, the valleys. Um, so you can't steer the dish, but you can steer the receiver uh, on top, and so you can look in slightly different directions. So uh, you can slightly steer the direction where you look into. Now, if you want to get any bigger and any more resolution, you're lost. Yeah. And so what you do is you make use of the fact that radio has large wavelengths, but it also has many, many photons. So you can actually do interferometry experiments uh, relatively easily in the radio um, because radio waves behave like classical waves. Uh, You can record them actually on tape or on disk um, which something you cannot do in the optical. Yeah. And so you can build an interferometer that combines telescopes that are distributed over large distances. Yeah. Uh, you record the waves locally, or you bring them together via electronic means, uh, on coax cables or, or, or glass fiber, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and then you bring the waves to interference you combine the radio waves and then you can synthesize essentially a radio telescope the size of the diameter or separation of these telescopes yeah and more dishes you have uh, the better your image quality yeah that's something that started i think uh, right after the second world war uh, people looked at sort of how we can use interferometry to actually get higher resolution, positional information, imaging information with radio telescopes. And um, the, the, you already hinted at it, the difference between optical and uh, radio uh, interferometry is that in optical interferometry, you typically overlay the actual image because the wavelengths are so short, you have to do optical combination. And in radio astronomy, the uh, interferometers have always, not always, but for a long time have had kilometers of distance. And then you have a, an offline, almost an offline component, usually called the correlator, which does the correlation of the signals to synthesize the image. Well, if you have interferometers of like kilometers, you actually have connected element interferometers. Uh, and current examples are you know, ALMA, which is a millimeter wave, large uh, connected element interferometer. You have, well, things like the VLA, which has been very, very large array in New Mexico. Yeah. 
of many dishes, uh, one of the most successful telescopes in astronomy, uh, most productive ones, at least. Uh, Westerbork array, LOFAR, of course. Yep. Uh, that's where, you know, you record the radio waves at these different dishes, or actually in LOFAR, it's just uh, wire antennas. Yep. Um, and you, you know, you digitize them and you correlate the data. Um, you don't even have to correlate this in, in, in a computer. You could even do this in an analog way. Yeah, that's what the VLA did originally, right? Yeah, and, and, and in Bologna, there's a Bologna uh, cross. Um, I saw the delay lines. You know, you would yep. delay uh, the radio waves, which are actually then on copper, on, on copper cable. Um, you would delay them, you know, uh, in, in sort of real time, having to go through more wire. Uh, and that was something that actually optical interferometers still need to do today. Yep. Um, because in, in radio, one quickly was able to really record the waves. You know, you would store the wave uh, and you would store the amplitude and the wave and, and the phase of the wave. Um, you can put this on, on a hard drive, on yep. a videotape, uh, uh, whatever. Um, I started with videotapes in VOBI in the, in the early days. Um, and, and then you can actually you know, multiply them, copy them. You can do whatever you like with yep. those. Waves, you know, it's there. Really, you have a physical, you know, copy of of the waves. In optical interferometers, and optical interferometry is still still a hard business. Yep. You cannot do this because you only register individual photons, and a photon, a single photon, because of uh, quantum limits, uh, you cannot perfectly measure copy and duplicate yeah. uh, because it's just the uh, uncertainty principle and and so uh, that has interesting effects that in a radio interferometry the more dishes you have the better mm -hmm. because you can form many combinations of one dish with all the other ones yep. baselines uh, many baselines as we call them and the more information you get yep. in optical is is quite different because the more baselines you have the less photons you have because the photons have to be divided up between all these different baselines. You can, cannot multiply or amplify them. Yep. Uh, and that's why deformetry to become really, really impactful, I think, had to wait until uh, the VLT interferometer gravity was built yep. uh, and completed just, you know, I think it was its first big results last year and the last two years, uh, where you have four, only four very big dishes providing lots of photons, um, and then you can correlate them in real time and, uh, and get good results. But adding more dish, more telescopes would actually dilute uh, the signal mm -hmm. significantly. In radio, you can add more and more, and yeah. so uh, the more the merrier. And because you record the wave and then fundamentally do computational interferometry, right? Doesn't matter if it's analog or, well, today it's digital. This allows you to distribute the telescopes much further than what you could do with a direct coax cable or even a direct opti optical combination as in the VLT. Yeah. And that is what enables these very large baseline interferometers where you connect telescopes all over the world, right? That's kind of the enabling idea. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is actually an old idea. I must admit, I don't remember how old it actually is. <laughs> I think the first experiments were done in the uh, in the 70s. Uh, so it's more than 40 years uh, ago that uh, VOBI was, was tried. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and um, these were really brave experiments um, that you can uh, you can do. You can actually do this at home, by the way, at, at low frequencies. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we did this uh, ourselves in the early days of LOFAR, the low frequency array, uh, very low frequency waves um, with tens to hundreds of megahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, we would actually record the waves just on a PC using the PC clock uh, as, as, as a time reference. Um, store them one in France, you know, one data set in France, one data set in the Netherlands. We would record uh, data coming from Jupiter, a Jupiter flare. Um, and then you just correlate this on your PC. I mean, this is very, very simple, very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially a Fourier transform, yep. which many program packages have pre programmed. If you just use a Python program uh, package or whatever you like, uh, MATLAB or, or so, you can very easily do a interferometry experiment. Store the data. Um, I've seen experiments where people even use the sound card. You, know, you, <laughs> mm-hmm. you would use a, a wire that was sensitive at a few tens of megahertz, and you would sort of down-convert it. So there's a little bit of electronics. You would just get like 10 kilohertz channel at 10, 20 megahertz, whatever you like. Um, and that you could digitize with your sound card. And you would have two sound cards or two PCs. You would record them. You correlate the data. Yeah. And then you see the interference pattern. You could yeah. see like a Jupiter flare, for example. Yeah. If, if you're lucky. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, in principle, interferometry is dirt simple. If you have the... <laughs> if you have As with a, most things, in principle, they're simple. Yes. Yes. Right, yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it was simple for low frequencies. It's simple because yeah. uh, the requirements are not so strong. Right. Uh, the wavelengths are large. The, the timing um, of a simple clock is actually is, is almost good enough. You could use GPS to yeah. to synchronize things better. Yeah. Uh, today, this is really really something you know, and any amateur astronomer can do with a little bit of, of knowledge. When I when I looked into Alma. Um, which works at uh, also shorter wavelengths, still in the radio, of course, they put quite a bit of effort into time synchronization. Um, And I guess you have a similar challenge for EHT and other VLBIs. Um, Can you tell us a bit why time synchronization is so crucial and how you do it in a VLBI context? I mean... You have wavelengths. If you go to uh, to Alma so, and, and also the Event Horizon telescopes, uh, which are millimeter mm-hmm. sized, um, and um, if you go to 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 low far low frequencies, you have waves which are meters in size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to really r- register the arrival time of these waves to a fraction of the wavelengths. Yeah, you have to align the phase. You have to align the phase, the arrival time of the wave. I mean, waves are just peaks and valleys. Yeah? Yeah. If you say align the phase, that just means that you know, the peaks you know, of, of the two waves at the two telescopes, you know, if they are really coming from directly in front of you, should arrive exactly at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And if, if your timing is not right, then the, the valley will shift onto uh, the peaks of uh, the wave at the other telescope. If you combine the two, they will destructively interfere cancel yeah. each other uh, so if they're perfectly in phase then all the peaks uh, will align perfectly and you if you combine them you correlate them you actually get a correlation signal a 
a positive constructive interference. Yep. And so having the timing to a fraction of the wavelengths correct is absolutely crucial. Um, and then you can calculate. I mean, you know that light um, will travel one foot in a nanosecond, right? So that's <laughs> always good to remember. You know, a, a foot, that's the only time when actually imperial <laughs> units are quite useful, right? So let me say this. Uh, so a light foot is a nanosecond. That's right. something to remember. Yeah. And in, in low frequency interferometry, you know, you, many foots are good enough. So, you know, yeah. uh, it doesn't have to be as precise as a nanosecond. But in, in EHT, it has to be within a millimeter. So the time it travels, you know, the light travels across the width of your laces, of your, sh of your shoe. Yep. And that requires picoseconds or better uh, timing accuracy. Yeah. That's Absolutely not easy. And so, how do you do that? Uh, if the, I mean, I, I know that, for example, for Alma, they have they do this basically with lasers, and they use the, a, a laser frequency as the, if you will, the clock ticks uh, for oh. the fine grained, and then for the coarse grained, they send around GPS-based time events. How does it? How do you do that? You can't. You can't connect all the telescopes all over the world with a, a, a glass fiber and send the laser through. So, how do you do that for for VLBI? Yeah, that, that's exactly the point. Even if you would connect them with glass fiber, it would not be one direct fiber. Yeah. It would, you know, if you connect it over the internet, so to speak, then you would have many switches and stuff in between. So yeah. you would not have a direct fiber from one point to the other across the entire world. Yeah. Um, that would uh, would not be possible. Yeah. Um, so a direct synchronization sub picosecond level is just not not feasible. You know, yeah. I often get asked this question: Why don't you just you know send this all over internet? Uh, it <laughs> yeah. just doesn't, you know, especially if you have a telescope on the on the South Pole, right? So, yeah. Or on these remote mountains. You don't even have good internet there. Well, it might be better um, than in Germany, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, even Rwanda has better internet than yeah. actually where I live, the near near major city in, in Germany. Um, nothing against Rwanda, by the way. Just you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. They have good internet uh, officially. Yeah, I think everybody understood that it was more like a joke about Germany. <laughs> yes. Um so you need to have a good clock locally. And it's not just one clock enough. We actually use different synchronization schemes. Uh, of course, the most visible one is the atomic clock, yeah. uh, your hydrogen maser, uh, which you can buy actually commercially mm -hmm. these days. And they actually give you a stability uh, that's good enough at uh, several hundred gigahertz um, over timescales of... Uh, tens to hundreds thousand seconds mm -hmm. so that's time scale of a typical scan mm -hmm. scan length so that gives you sort of the short-term stability mm -hmm. there is gps still involved to give you sort of the overall stability of the, uh, the absolute sort of comparison of the clock so basically you know that the first laser uh, maser tick if you will was exactly at this particular gps time and then you do exactly. the fine grain what... based on the maser Yes, and yeah. you, you, you slave the PPS, the pulse per second, from the maser to sort of your equipment. So all the equipment gets more or less the same clock. Mm -hmm. So on short time scales, you know, the PPS, 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 the pulse per second, you know, the, the main gong, you know, of your of all your systems mm -hmm. is always at the same time for all your ADCs, for your receivers, and for your recording system. And actually in the recording system, you actually record the time mm -hmm. stamp there. Um And so that's, that's sort of the short-term uh, synchronization. And you know then when the, PP, the PPS came, you know, via GPS, it's that time. Yep. Um, and then there's still a residual drift in your system. 
because uh, even the clocks are not stable. Mm -hmm. uh, the position of a telescope is not stable um, because that changes. I mean, the, the tides will actually change the position of the telescope. It will actually move up and down. Ah, so you're not talking about the position in terms of the geometry of the interferometer because the Earth rotates. That's kind of obvious. But you're talking about the even on the assumed to be stable earth the telescopes have tidal effects that move their position yes yeah so okay. let's, let's go back first to the the, the 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 clock drift there's a clock drift in the atomic clock yeah. that you need to calibrate yeah. and you do this by looking at known calibrator sources throughout your vbi run so you know where they are uh, and these are stable sources mm -hmm. and then you 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 do something what we call fringe fitting so you compare the signal um you roughly know how to align the phases of the different telescopes, but there's still an unknown offset. Mm -hmm. That comes from many, many different factors. And one factor is just the drift of the, uh, of the atomic clock. So you calibrate the atomic clock, and you assume that that drift is more or less linear. Yeah. So for a certain time scale, you can then sort of calibrate and predict what your clock is doing. Yeah. But then there indeed are these positional effects, which are actually much more stronger in principle. Uh, the Earth rotates, obviously, so you know, need to know exactly what the, the Earth orientation parameters are. Mm -hmm. In fact, VLBI is actually used to measure the Earth orientation yeah. parameters. That's yeah. another way, right? So yeah. it's an iterative process. You actually look at many sources on the sky and you measure what the, uh, the polar wonder is, how the pole wobbles around the Earth's axis, mm -hmm. right? The, the Earth, mm -hmm. How the Earth actually wobbles around sort of the nominal axis. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are lots of effects that actually, the effects like the planets, you know, major, the constellation of the planets where they are, they give you sort of a wobbling of the Earth's axis. Mm -hmm. I think these are on, on, on scales of hundreds of meters or so, uh, solar system effects. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the residual effects can be tens of meters that the Earth's axis is wobbling around. And this is just weather. Um, air masses yeah. being... <laughs> More uh, trees shedding their uh, their leaves <laughs> yeah. on one part of the earth than on somewhere else. I don't know what kind of effects are all relevant, but these are very subtle effects: uh, air, water, yeah. um, just not predictable. So th these you need to take into account. Yeah, and yeah. the tidal effects. Yeah, uh, the, the motion, like in Hawaii, moves with six centimeters per second. Continental drift. It's mm -hmm. an, uh, this is a volcanic island. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actually moves very fast. One of the fastest moving telescopes, apart from the South Pole, which is on, a sh on an ice shelf, yeah, which, yeah. Also, <laughs> right. yeah. which I think meters, uh, uh, sorry, did I say six centimeter per second? Or yeah, six it sounded too much. Year. Yeah, that, okay, that was right. crazy. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. No, it was six centimeters per year. Yeah. And I think South Pole, we were talking on meters yeah. per year. And then, then Atlantic, uh, Europe and, and the Atlantic drifting away, I think, millimeter or so per, per mm -hmm. year. I mean, don't check, please check all these numbers. This is all sort of my vague memory from, yeah. from younger years. I will. Uh, <laughs> but the, the cool thing is that, as you said before, with this fringe fitting, you kind of turn the process around and you know what you're looking at. And so you can then calibrate. So you don't actually have to understand all of these things in detail, right? You can reverse engineer the sum of all these effects and use that to calibrate without knowing every contribution in detail. Yeah, you have to you have to calibrate them, yeah. uh, and you can look at multiple sources and yeah. so forth. And when I was saying talking about this uh, LOFA experiment we did with the clocks, the clocks had terrible characteristics, but we had a bright point source, a Jupiter flare. Yeah. Uh, then you know exactly how to align this, yeah. and then from the maximum alignment you find, you can say something about the compactness of the source, for example, yeah. even without knowing exactly where it is. 
By the way, I will be in Effetsberg on August 12th and also talk a bit about their LOFAR station. So we'll talk a bit about that as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and uh, that's where I, you know, built up you know, yep. some of the very first LOFAR antennas. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, as myself uh, right. was a student. So, in addition to the time synchronization and the moving telescopes, what other challenges are there from an engineering or, or measurement perspective for building VLBIs? Could imagine, for example, if you have different telescope technologies or characteristics, that might be. Yeah, that that sort of a, a big. Yeah. There are many practical issues as well, um, which also have to do with operations. Um, VLBI is something you do once or twice a year, so you always have to uh, reconnect your uh, your equipment. It's sort of standing idle for half a year, and then you reconnect it, you start it up. Mm. Um, in many cases, you had to wire it up again, and then. You know, in the old days, it was quite common that cables were switched. So the, the left circular and right circular polarizations were switched. That was a very common error. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, simple cables, cable switches and, and getting every, everything to be stable again. Mm -hmm. um, you have to take care of, I mean, properly, of course, getting the signal from the telescope into the VBI equipment. So uh, you have to split it off. These days in EHT, we have, uh, like in, in IRAM, we have a little switch. We can, you know, now switch between, you know, normal receivers, uh, normal uh, backends, uh, which record the, uh, the radio signal from the receiver. Yeah, so the receiver is probably the same, but yes. yeah, the recording is the one that's kind of connected to your clock, for example. Exactly, so that is, from my yeah. clock, right. exactly, yeah. from yeah, my yeah. clock, but our clock, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> our special digital equipment. In principle, you could double use this. Yep. Um, but in, in practice, every experiment, every sort of different setup often has a different digital um, receiver backend. And so you need to switch, switch back and forth. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you have to have room enough in the telescopes to get this installed. There's some telescopes. <laughs> well, this is a major, major yeah, enterprise. Sure. You're getting all the cables down from yep. uh, the receiver cabin down to the, the backend room and so forth. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's often a lot of really practical engineering work to get these things these things going mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and you know of course and they are, I mean, you mentioned this they're very different yeah yeah uh, one one other example is polarization mm -hmm. most telescopes have uh, circular feeds radio telescope mm -hmm. uh, left or right circular but then the other telescopes have uh, sometimes linear feeds vertical and horizontal mm -hmm. and then you want to you know you have One telescope has, has circular and one has linear polarization feeds. And if you correlate a circular with a linear feed, you're losing signal because mm -hmm. you're not measuring the same, uh, the same signal, really. Yeah, right. Um, what one used to do was insert um, quarter wave plates into the wave path. Um, that would then turn uh, linear into circular, and you would then record circular. Mm -hmm. Um, that is difficult once you go to a very large telescope, like ALMA, for example, has linear feeds, mm -hmm. and inserting a quarter wave plates in each of these light paths, yeah. um, you know, was just not feasible. So what did you do? Well, uh, there was a, a big contribution, particular here from, uh, from Onsala in Sweden, Ivan Mati Vidal, Uh, and some others uh, wrote actually a technique to uh, correct this after 
um, correlation. You would actually mm -hmm. now correlate linear with circular. Um, and then there's some mathematics, um, simple, <laughs> but in, in practice, uh, to implement difficult uh, relations, which would allow you to recover the other um, products. Mm -hmm. um, so you'd usually what you do is you correlate left circular with left circular, right circular with right circular, and then right with left and left with right. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the ones which are sort of uh, the same polarization, you get total intensity. And from the, the cross uh, hands, you get polarization information. Mm -hmm. You can actually recover linear polarization from correlating uh, circular polarization, different circular polarizations, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something to you know, work out mathematically. But if you then have mixed signals, you get a very complicated matrix, so to speak, and mm -hmm. you need to correct these things. Uh, calibrate them properly and then uh, produce uh, the normal correlator output. So there's an additional piece of software now in between rather than quarter wave plates, which do the same more or less as quarter wave plates. And I think that's in principle from an operational perspective better mm -hmm. uh, because you don't, have, you don't have another hardware component, but it means a lot of software effort and many things that can still go wrong because, yeah. again, many telescopes are very different. Um, there are sort of leakage terms where you have uh, no receiver, no polarization measurement. It's always perfect. Yeah. Um, and these need to be calibrated in order to get good polarization measurements. And every telescope has to be done individually, more or less. Uh, and so that, that really is a major effort to get proper polarization out of these, uh, these measurements. Interesting. So let's move on to the EHT. Who is it? What is it? I mean, I guess we know what it is, right? <laughs> But... Um, Who's behind it? Uh, what's the history a little bit? Yeah, the history is uh, maybe sometimes controversial. <laughs> Depends on whom you talk to. Mm -hmm. um, talking to you. <laughs> if, if you're talking to me, yeah. Now, I, I mean, VOBI has been going on for a long time. Yeah. Um, and there was always a natural push to go to a higher and higher frequencies. And in the 1990s, 1990s, uh, really... Um, There was a, a development to go to higher to higher frequencies, go to millimeter waves, mm -hmm. with a new submillimeter or millimeter telescopes, which just became sort of available at the time. And there were pathfinder experiments. I think there was a detection at three three C two seven nine in the US. Um, and then there was a brave scientifically driven set of millimeter and submillimeter, well millimeter experiments mainly uh, to go to one millimeter VLBI, uh, which were done in Europe with the IRAM telescopes. There was a Plateau de Bure interferometer in mm -hmm. uh, Grenoble in France. Yep, I've disturbed their observations by flying over it with a glider. I know where it is. Oh, oh. <laughs> I actually you know, recently was flown there with a helicopter yeah, because cool. the car was not available, and yeah. that, the helicopter was the only yeah. uh, available one. And that was a very impressive yeah. uh, Sight, yeah, see suddenly on the top of this mountain, see this sort of array of yeah. dishes appear. It's like a James Bond movie. Yeah, it's really. also just a beautiful area down there. It's a beautiful area. Uh, a very harsh environment as well because mm -hmm. they can have uh, very strong, strong gusts and winds, yep. uh, uh, low temperatures. Um, and in Spain, the, the Pico Veleta uh, mountain, a mountain called Pico Veleta near Granada. Uh, and that's sort of a thousand kilometer baseline. Mm -hmm. And they did the first uh, successful measurements of a number of sources. Um, middle of the 90s was published in 1998 by my colleague Thomas Krichbaum. Mm -hmm. 
uh, who was busy, you know, working on uh, the Galactic Center and, and Millimeter VBI. And I was I was in Bonn at the time, at the Max Planck Institute as a as a PhD student. And actually, I was supposed to work on uh, on line-driven winds from accretion disks together with my supervisor Peter Biermann. Um, but the Galactic Center became very fashionable at the time. Uh, there were the first measurements from the Garching group in the near infrared where there was discussion about the first detection of Sagittarius A star in the near infrared, uh, which later turned out to be the stars, uh, the stars that we know, know, you know, rotate around the black hole. But it was, you know, that was an important breakthrough at the time that uh, the center of the Milky Way was seen in near infrared at the first time, you know, seeing through the dust. And the other wavelengths that can see through the dust of the Milky Way towards the center of our Milky Way, where the central black hole is, uh, was radio. Mm-hmm. And and so um, the people in Bonn were, you know, actually two different groups: the VBI group and the submillimeter group were looking at the the gas and the dust in the galactic center, and the VBI group was making the first images. And then the first seven millimeter uh, map came out, and you know, it was looking a little bit like a uh, like a jet. Mm-hmm. And um, we looked at this, and, and we we want, were wondering what is actually the radio emission of Sagittarius A star? What is uh, where does it come from? And discussing this, uh, my, my supervisor and uh, my then PhD thesis as PhD student uh, colleague, and now also professor in in, in in Würzburg, Karl Mannheim, we were discussing that this it looks really the radio spectrum of the galactic center really looked like like a jet, mm-hmm. uh, like what you see in, in the center in the center of of quasars, you see a flat spectrum radio core. And a flat spectrum radio core was typically explained uh, in, in quasars and radio galaxies as the innermost region of a radio jet. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we worked out a, a, a simple paper uh, to explain how can this radio jet, this radio source in the center of the Milky Way, be so small. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that you'd have a couple jet disk system, that sort of jets would be there all the time around black holes, but they would become more powerful if the black hole eats more, and if the black hole eats less, then uh, the jet would be tiny and uh, and, and and small and, mm-hmm. and faint. And when we did this simple estimates, then uh, it looked like the galactic center would have an extremely low accretion rate, would, you know, operate at very, very low powers um, in numbers, you know, 10 to the minus 8 solar masses per year. Now, it's still a lot, right? It's sort of, uh, uh, you would eat an entire sun in 100 million years. Um, so our sun would be gone on relatively long, sh- short cosmological timescales. But for a black hole, this is a rather low rate of accretion yeah. because all the quasars would eat one sun per year, right? This yeah. was 100 million times less. I call this an, an, an AGN, an active galactic nucleus, on a starvation diet. <laughs> uh, it just, and if you, but if you do this, and you could explain that radio emission, you could expect this the spectrum and so forth, and this, the size of the, the, the radio jet was, was a bit large that was seen. Well, then it turned out that actually the measurement, the, the extended emission that was seen was probably due to calibration. And so it took actually 10 more years to really measure and find out what the size of Sagittarius A star was. But it was of the same order. It was mm-hmm. just somewhat smaller. Um, and the model would be, you know, still explaining this well. 
but that triggered the thinking, and the immediate consequence was of that model, if you would apply this, that the millimeter emission would come from very close to the event horizon. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other group, the, the group of uh, Peter Metzger at, at the Institute, had measured the submillimeter spectrum of Sagittarius A star, and there also an American group working on this, and it looked like really the spectrum, uh, if you go to higher and higher frequencies, was suddenly turned down. Its emission would no longer continue, it would just break. You know, it would just disappear. And so we, I thought, uh, you know, we... We are going here closer and closer to the black hole. We're approaching the black hole, and then the mission just disappears. Mm -hmm. So millimeter is a region where uh, the entire black hole is, you know, surrounded by millimeter radiating emission. And so we said, uh, you know, this is where you really approach the event horizon. Mm -hmm. And then the, the same colleagues measured the one millimeter emission, and they found that indeed it was very small. Um, and it was still, to me, a bit unclear whether you could actually see the black hole. Because mm -hmm. if you then were calculating, given what we knew then about the mass of the black hole, uh, the size of the Earth, the wavelengths where this all was possible, um, that the event horizon was too small to be seen. Yeah, because the, the, it's about the angular resolution that you can achieve in the respective wavelengths, even if you use the whole Earth or significant subsets as baseline length, right? That's right. the question, at, yeah. At the time, you, we, we would only use 1,000 kilometer baseline, but it was easily to picture a, a yeah. global array, yeah. right? So suppose you use the entire Earth, uh, then it still looked like the event horizon was out of reach mm -hmm. at these wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit frustrating, but still interesting because it was within a factor of two or so. Mm -hmm. And then it was one lonely afternoon in the in, in the library when I was looking through a conference proceedings book, uh, looking at one article. But there was another one nearby uh, that I saw about sort of how black hole would look like in front of a star. Mm -hmm. And it looked much bigger. The hole, you know, that was drawn there looked much bigger. That was the paper by Bardeen. Mm -hmm. Wow, why is this? This was a highly spinning black hole, which should have been very, very small. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Half a Schwarzschild radius in, in radius. Mm -hmm. So a diameter would be one Schwarzschild radius. That would be the size of the event horizon as, as diameter. But the, the hole that you would see in this calculation was about uh, five Schwarzschild radii in diameter. Mm -hmm. uh, much bigger. I thought, well, why is this? Uh -huh. And it, was, it became obvious very quickly, of course, the black hole lenses itself, more or less, right? <laughs> so the black hole, it, it, it amplifies its own event horizon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You get a much larger hole. Uh, and then I was just a bit nervous. Okay, is that still true if you have the emission coming from very near the event horizon? And uh, it should be. Uh, but then we did these calculations uh, and, you know, how a black hole would look like uh, if you really engulf it in this optically thin millimeter emission. Mm -hmm. Um and lo and behold, you would see this same dark region, which wasn't completely dark because the emission would come from all directions. So you'd also right. have emission in front of you. Yep. It's something which was a bit fluffy. You know, it, it was sort of sharp inside, but it was not perfectly dark. Uh, and so we discussed how to call this and, and on, the, on a phone call with my then co-authors, uh, Fulvio Melia and Eric Egel. Um, and we decided to call this the shadow of the black hole. No, because mm -hmm. we, we couldn't call it the black hole, right? We were talking about the, the yeah. dip or the hole or whatever. 
they call it the, the shadow. It's of course not the shadow in the in the in the sense we use the word shadow here on the ground, right? It's not like there's something in the way of the radiation, and then you have. It's not exactly like that. But well, I mean, it, 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 well, if you talk about light in a curved space time, all our natural pictures break down more sure. or less. Yeah. It is always a figure of speech exactly, uh, yeah. that you use. Yeah. But what is in the way, indeed, is the, uh, the event horizon, which actually yeah. absorbs light. So in yeah. that sense, it, it is in that sense like, like oh, a shadow. Okay, but yeah. it's actually, uh, people also want to call it a silhouette sometimes, and they are very adamant about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but a silhouette, I think, is only something that if you shine light from behind in you know, a parallel plane wave at something that you very clearly see what it is. And that's not the case here. Mm -hmm. You have light coming from all directions. Yeah. I always say the, the black hole is able to, you know, hide behind its own shadow. A lot of its <laughs> properties uh, are not so easy to be seen. One particular aspect of the shadow is that it's always almost the same size, irrespective uh, what the uh, the spin of the black hole is, how fast it rotates, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. The event horizon can be very small or very large, uh, depending on how far you rotate. Uh, but the shadow is almost roughly the same size. And that was a very important finding because it said that if you have a given mass for the black hole and that would become clearer in the next 10 years until you know, you know year 2000 in the middle of the 2000s the mass would become very well determined from all the stars once you know this you know exactly how big the shadow is you know the wavelengths where it becomes roughly optically thin where it comes from near the event horizon yeah. then you should be able to see that shadow and that was around the year 2000 mm -hmm. after the first Pathfinder experiments were done, and the, the science idea became clearer. Um, and then we we discussed this at workshops. I, I think you know the first one I we discussed this really openly and more directly was in 1998 in Tucson, a workshop I had organized. Mm -hmm. uh, we had an explicit discussion on VOBI and on theory. And uh, I remember talking about this and. It's actually even recorded on tape, <laughs> and you can read it. And you actually, it's written out in the conference proceedings, so it's actually on ADS. Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually follow all the discussions from this early workshop in, in 1998. Uh, it's uh, uh, Falk and Potera is the book, and then mm -hmm. there are you know, various sure. uh, these discussions discussions written down. It's quite interesting to 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 look at this. How you know we were grappling with the idea and. I remember Charlie Towns was uh, asking, "Why well, you mean you can actually see the black hole? I said, yeah, yeah, you should, you should see something dark in the very center. Mm -hmm. And another VOBI colleague said, ah, one millimeter, maybe not so, maybe it's just dust emission, right? So, mm -hmm. it's, uh, so it was still a bit unclear what, what actually one millimeter emission would mean at the time. But then it was the next couple of years, this became clearer and clearer. And in 2004, we had a, a meeting celebrating the... Uh, birthday of Sagittarius A star, which was then discovered 30 years ago. <laughs> it was really a birthday meeting. It was a plaque was placed on the Green Bank interferometer, which discovered it. Mm -hmm. A few months before Westerbork discovered it. <laughs> so that was a race in the mm -hmm. 70s. Um, and we had another evening session there with a number of colleagues. Uh, Jeff Bauer, Shep Dohm, and myself were presenting. Uh, had organized this, and then we had the discussion about you know, asking the community, do you think that's possible to do this? And uh, the overwhelming majority said, yes, that is something we should be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, that is important. So within a, like four or five years, the, the mood had swung around, and from like something being very vague, it has become to something, yep, yeah, that's something you should try. Mm -hmm. 
MIT Haystack Observatory is actually a place where a lot of VOBI equipment was developed. They did a lot of the technical developments for VOBI over all the years. Mm -hmm. And they started the program in around 2004 for high-speed broadband digital equipment. Mm -hmm. And that was led by, uh, by Dolman. And um, we, uh, they did some experiments uh, between uh, Karma, the Karma um, interferometer mm-hmm. was a major array in, in uh, at Head Creek in California, in Arizona. Arizona, the area telescope there was first the Heinrich Hertz telescope, was sort of a Arizona plus Max Planck uh, telescope. It later became the submillimeter telescope, and Planck, Max Planck actually stepped out of the, uh, mm-hmm. the experiment. Um, well, you, can, you can still read some German sentences in the <laughs> telescope. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And, and Hawaii, the JCMT, which actually was a, a British-Dutch telescope, which is now was handed over to an Asian consortium, mm-hmm. and the SMA, uh, the submillimeter array, which was owned by uh, Harvard. Mm-hmm. So that did a number of experiments uh, at the time. We had some, in 2004, 2005, some telecons that are organized together with Jeff Bauer, Chef Dorm, and myself, also Neil Nagar from, from Chile, thinking about how can we move this forward. And, and we were discussing, you know, we have to make a physics experiment. You know, it has to be you know, very targeted. You know, one thing, like we want to find the Higgs, we want to see the shadow of the black mm-hmm. hole. So you're talking about funding and motivating people to join, basically. So Funding, f- motivating, it, yes. Yeah. Preparing the ground. Yeah. We were even discussing, can we use the, uh, the VLT mm-hmm. <laughs> for, a, for a submillimeter experiment? Because mm-hmm. it has an aluminumized uh, surface, and you could put a heterodyne receiver <laughs> on top of it. During the day, you could do millimeter, submillimeter observations mm-hmm. uh, and use it as a, as a VOBI experiment. Uh, that's why we're discussing this with Neil, Neil Nagar, um, who was in Chile, because he could get Chilean time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear that, that uh, Apex Alma would be very important, and that was still a long way ago. But, you know, we, we were talking with people, and so uh, VOBI was also mentioned as a science case for, for Alma already in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. We were in Europe, I was pushing this into or pro- promoting this in the European uh, strategic uh, plan for astronomy, mm-hmm. astronaut proposal uh, or astronaut roadmap uh, in the middle of the 2000s. Um, and then at the end of the 2000s, the decadal review in the US came up mm-hmm. and uh, there was a meeting in, at the AAS meeting where a number of people came together, which was quite uh, important. Um, Charles Gemmy was there. He was showing uh, GRMHD simulations. GRMHD? Uh, general relativistic magnetohydrodynamic simulations. And for, okay. for the first time, uh, I saw a, a jet that actually looked like a real jet. Mm-hmm. But certain aspects were missing. You know, we're not going to go into these details, yep. uh, which we later added uh, to make it you know, the jet that they are now uh, and are able to reproduce the observations. Uh, we're also sitting together and discussing the science case again. Um, and I remember the coffee break discussion with Jeff Dolman, myself, and, and Dan Maroney from Arizona. I was saying, you know, we, we, we have to give it a better name. You know, you can't mm-hmm. just call it submillimeter uh, VOBI. That's just not interesting. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't radiate anything. You have, <laughs> yeah. you have to give it an interesting name. What about Event Horizon Array or whatever? Yeah. And, and then at the end of the discussion, we came up with Event Horizon Telescope. 
uh, as a name, and that was that ended up then in the uh, in the Decatur Review as as a name. Mm-hmm. Well, it was clear it had to be a global international collaboration, and there were lots of discussions how to do this. There was a a letter of intent was signed by a number of telescopes to grow, I think mm-hmm. was it 2011 or so, to build this network. The Netherlands had walked out of the uh, JCMT. I didn't have a telescope myself. Uh, so we went for the ERC grant, mm-hmm. uh, European Research Council Synergy Grant, which was a new instrument, uh, also a, a very tough instrument or tough new funding in- instrument. Because you know, in the first round, only 1.5% of the proposals had been honored. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided nonetheless to go for it and get instrumentation money for uh, the event drive telescope. Uh, we called it Black Hole Cam, the mm-hmm. Black Hole uh, Cam, because every telescope needs a camera. Yeah. And so what you, the telescopes were there. They were, had been funded uh, by other sources. Uh, what you needed was the, the equipment. Yeah the digital recorders and stuff. And so that's what we put in there. And lo and behold, we, we got this. I think it were like 14 out of four or 600 grants, 14 grants were, were given out of four, 600 distributed over all sciences over all Europe. Mm-hmm. So that was a really tough competition. Yeah, that sounds... But we got uh, almost a full amount of 14 million euros. Uh, we were cut by one million because I screwed up in the last five minutes of the interview. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I literally lost, you know, one million euro in, in five minutes. Yeah, that's a. Uh, <laughs> I, I later verified this with the staff that yes, your last answer was just not right. P- people were a bit annoyed because I didn't have the, the, all the budget numbers right. Right. right you okay. know, in, in the last minute, I was just you know not sharp enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so they cut this out. Um, and then the Americans would write their grant to the NSF of, uh, for the Event Horizon Telescope Infrastructure Grant. They had already some other grants for technical developments, I, I should say this. In Bonn, they had worked very hard on the VOBI uh, development for APEX a telescope mm-hmm. there. So there had been many, many around the world uh, developments in, in these directions, which then came together. Um, and uh, in the U.S. got the NS- big NSF funds, and then we had everything together, you know, um, telescopes, individual developments. Um, there were correlator centers in Haystack and in Bonn, which mm-hmm. were available. Uh, two big grants to fund some of the operations and the equipment that had to go to all the telescope unified equipment. And then we had we started the process to negotiate. Uh, it was the first meeting in Arizona. That was still bef- that was yet before. The first uh, big money was there, then a meeting in Waterloo, which was a big meeting uh, at the Perimeter Institute, where essentially the, the basis for the collaboration agreement were negotiated. Yeah. So I mean, it's a little bit like the United Nations, these things, right? So it's it's a long, tedious process. You yeah. get so many partners on one table to agree exactly. on one structure. People, people might really underestimate that because each of these telescopes and each of the PIs and each of the groups has their own agendas, which they're already invested in and have their own ways of looking at the world, or in this case, the sky, um, and getting people to actually agree on something like that, to do something together, like modifying their own local interests is, is really non-trivial. Yes, <laughs> absolutely resounding yes. 
Yeah. Uh, everybody has their own in, uh, history, their own future in front of them. Yeah. Uh, very different cultures. Yeah. Very different, very different social uh, interactions and networks, and uh, and also views of the world and and of of this guy indeed. Yeah. Uh, in that to bring this together and and some are from big institutions uh, with with a lot of power other from more in more service institutions which have to serve the community yep. and others sort of like myself from a you know a university uh, a small university group more or less but with a big uh, big grant then yeah so all very different in setup, uh, very different uh, people and and organizations. Yes. Yeah. And so now um, the the collaboration is. I think I read somewhere eight stations with uh, on six at six geographical locations, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, new, new telescopes are joining now. Mm -hmm. The Plato de Buer interferometer will join. Is something that we contributed to together with Max Planck and uh, in Iram, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, that will be. A phased array. This is actually the, the most sensitive telescopes after Alma. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, there's a new telescope in Greenland that mm -hmm. our Asian uh, colleagues brought there. It was supposed to go inland on the ice shelf because that's a very cold, also very very harsh and difficult conditions. Yeah. So it's now still waiting for its transport inland. Uh, it's now standing at a military base in Thule in, in, oh, yeah. in Greenland, uh, almost on sea level, which is almost unheard of for a millimeter telescope. But, mm -hmm. but you know, in winter, it's so cold, uh, you have, you know, similar conditions sometimes as on a 2,000, 3,000 meter high mountain somewhere yeah. else, depending yeah. on the weather. And uh, in Kid Peak, uh, Arizona will add the Kid Peak telescope. So there are additional ones that yeah. are joining. And the largest uh, baseline I read is uh, 10,700 kilometers. Considering that the Earth has 12,000 uh, kilometers uh, diameter, that's that's kind of almost opposite ends of the Earth, right? That's almost yeah, as much as it, you can get. There was a successful fringe uh, test between South Pole and Greenland. Mm -hmm. And it's really across almost the entire Earth. Yeah. And, you know, they were just looking essentially flat. <laughs> yeah. Towards which, the towards the horizon, more or less, which probably uh, comes uh, with its own challenges, right? Because I could imagine. I mean, the, certainly the atmosphere is thicker there. Yes, you have to go through a lot of atmosphere. Yeah. You know, of course, the, the, the most direct path is right overhead. Yeah. Of course, as every telescope on the Earth looks right overhead, <laughs> uh, they always look in different directions, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So you always have to look to a you know at, at lower elevations and sometimes at very low elevations, yeah. and that means and that's the other challenge we haven't discussed yet that means uh, the atmosphere becomes a big big trouble yeah. it's turbulent it has water vapor in it yeah. and that actually delays the arrival time of uh, and changes the arrival time of the your your radio waves yeah on 10 second time scale so wow. after 10 seconds uh, you have to sort of recalibrate. It's like seeing. It's like seeing in yeah, the optic. Okay. Of course, it happens on 50 millisecond timescales. Here yeah. you're having 10 second timescales. So it's yeah. actually rather slow yeah. compared to what's happening on the optical. Yeah, I think Alma is measuring twice a second, right, with their um, with their water vapor sensors I read somewhere. Yes, yes. So, we are yeah. also uh, uh, measuring on shorter timescales. In the end, we then have to make, within 10 seconds, we think that the signal is... It's okay, so we can measure on 10-second time scales the phase, sort of the, the change in arrival time. Yeah. And then you correct 
for this and uh, uh, only measure the long-term trend, so to speak. The yeah. short-term, 10-second timescales are all supposed to come from the atmosphere. Yeah. Did you build uh, a special correlator for this thing? Because I know that, at least I know for Alma, it has special hardware that is kind of specific to how Alma works. Um, and you said before that we have like uh, correlator centers available. Did you Did you reuse existing computing hardware? Uh, yes and no. One little detail, also Alma had to be combined for this experiment. Mm -hmm. So you, all these many dishes of Alma need to be combined into into one big virtual disk, yep. which is then used to correlate. So there, the correlator had to be modified to, to phase Alma. Mm -hmm. So that was another development that was sort of NSF-led, but also with European uh, contribution. And the correlator centers were there, But they were also upgraded. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they would have been upgraded anyway. Yeah. Uh, but certainly EHT was a major uh, motivation to do this. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you have your essentially big cluster computers, which would then, um, today they run uh, software correlators, right? Yeah. The DFX uh, correlator software. Yeah. Uh, run on a, you know, on a normal cluster, Normal quote unquote. It used to, the correlator centers used to be special hardware correlators, um, but this is now you know exchange for general purpose, yeah, software co yeah, correlators. Alma has special cards to you know sp split the overall bandwidth into you know sub bandwidth. I yeah, don't yeah. exactly know the detail. Alma still has a hardware correlator. You know, they're cards yeah. specifically built for Alma. Right. Yeah. Uh, in Lofa, for example, we started with a blue gene supercomputer from IBM. I, am. I see. We, mm -hmm. we did use a, a hardware correlator, mm -hmm. um, and then this has been now replaced with uh, actually already a second version of a, a computer cluster. Yeah. Cobalt. No. Yeah. Right. What What other kind of hardware innovations had to be had to be done? We talked about the timing before. We talked about the Yeah, the polarization. Well, that's software. Um, so, what else was there? Kind of in in in, in technique, in in hardware, in telescope engineering that needed to be done. I I, I formulated this way because there are probably also certain theoretical models that had to be built of the actual physics before the you know the design of the telescope could be uh, finalized. But let's talk um, about the the hardware and the telescope tech engineering first. I think the theory, you're right, was important, but I think it didn't drive the design of the telescope. Oh, yeah. I think okay. that, that's sort of, I think, straightforward. Um, I think we covered most okay. of these. There's a little, little detail. Well, I mean, one aspect is this weather, right? Typical VOBI is scheduled well in advance. Mm -hmm. So you make a schedule for all the telescopes. You say exactly what each telescope does. So you say, at these five minutes, we observe Sagittarius A star. Then yep. there are three minutes time. Um, they can make a pointing and a focus, for example. Yep. Know, actually, in three minutes, you're not going to make a focus. You can do a single po uh, pointing, perhaps. Um, then we go back to this other, to this calibrator source, you know, which we use yep. for, for fringe finding and fitting. And then we go back five minutes there. Uh, and so this is very standard. And then usually everything runs according to schedule. In the breaks between when you don't record, you know, every telescope does their local thing, you know, to, you know, again, refocus, pointing. And sometimes you also measure the, the optical depths in the atmosphere yeah. if you have enough time. At centimeter waves, this is not a big 
deal because you're weather independent. But at millimeter waves, mm -hmm. you know, the weather is always different. So it can mess up your schedule. You, you're going to miss uh, scans. You know, one scan is like five minutes when we're all together on the same source. And you have to pick the right days because you you know you could say okay we observe on April the third, but then it's you know it's cloudy everywhere yeah. and you don't see even the sources. In fact, in 2018, I was at the uh, in Pico Veleta. I remember some nights we were in the middle of the clouds. I couldn't see from the operations building. Couldn't see the top of the telescope even. <laughs> right? It was right in front of me. Right, I could. It just, you know, a few tens of meters away from the operations building, but I couldn't see the top of the telescope because all in clouds. And uh, even with the 30-meter telescopes at that time, we couldn't see some of the strongest quasars at millimeter waves anymore. Mm. <laughs> it was, um, uh, so it was pretty hopeless. Um, and, and so you need to find good days where the weather is good. And so you have to do some scheduling. And what, what's happening is that you reserve 10 days and then you look at the weather forecast and say, okay, uh, today the weather is good, let's observe. Mm -hmm. We are on standby. Otherwise, we do another program. In Iran, for example, they do pool observing. Um, so they have some a pool of, of observers which are on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And so it's a VBI. Uh, people say we're not going to observe this night. Then the other observers get the chance. Right. And that could be the weather could be perfect in Spain, but the weather was bad in in Chile or, or or elsewhere. Yeah, right. But you didn't have to record all baselines every for every observation, right? You could you could say let's join two or three telescopes at this point in time when the weather is good at those. You don't you don't need all eight sides. We do. Already. We do need all the telescopes. Oh, you do need all at the yes. same time. At the same time, uh, because an important part of the Calibration procedures are closure phases and closure amplitudes. And that is, if you combine the signals from three dishes mm -hmm. um, in a clever way, then uh, the correlation product is independent of the atmosphere above that telescope. Mm -hmm. So there is a certain delay, so to speak, at one telescope, yeah, mm -hmm. which in, in the arrival time, mm -hmm. which adds into the delay with respect to the other telescope. Mm -hmm. But it also adds in the opposite way to the, to ah. the delay the other direction. You combine mm -hmm. the two, it cancels. And of course, then you still have the other two telescopes which have an unknown delay, but then you combine those two yeah. and then this falls out again. So if you do this in a smart way, uh, the delays for the phases with three telescopes will cancel. And for the, for the amplitudes, we, by combining four uh, telescopes, will also cancel. Mm -hmm. So it is sort of how many closure phases and closure amplitudes you have will actually greatly improve your quality. Okay. In the mm -hmm. That's how you actually get rid of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that the closure phases and closure amplitudes are not weather dependent. So all the other effects are weather dependent. Mm -hmm. So the scheduling is important. Get maximum ex uh, optimal weather. We build a monitoring tool um, that actually gets from all the telescopes information well, not yet from all there, actually one or two is still missing, uh, about their current status. So we get the weather information, mm -hmm. we get where, where they're looking, uh, or receiver information and so forth, even about the atomic clock. We all get this on one web interface. We store it mm -hmm. in one central server. 
and so that we can use later to recover that data for calibration purposes. But we also see in real time, you know, how the situation is, yep. weather forecast is. So we got for actually from the Dutch Weather Service in, in, a, in a joint project, we were getting uh, weather forecasts from the global, uh, in this case, from the European uh, weather model. Mm-hmm. There's always a little discussion which one is better, the European or yeah. the American one. Um, there's some good arguments to say that the European one is slightly better. <laughs> uh, at least on a global uh, front, but well, you know, whether that's true, I don't know. Um, but what we saw actually that sort of at least on a one-day forecast, you get a reasonably good forecast of the water vapor in the mm-hmm. atmosphere. We were calibrating that with the water vapor measurements that were done in situ at the telescopes, uh, because the, the the weather grid that, that they produce for the world is not as fine-grained. And yeah. Not every mountain is really properly calibrated, and every every mountain has its own weather. Yeah. Doesn't always work perfect, but it works good enough to see whether there is some, uh, you know, how, how the weather will, will develop. And so you could nicely see the weather forecast for all the telescopes and so, and that helps you then in, in making decisions: Are we going to observe yes or no? Yeah. The hope is, in the long run, something I'd like to push that we get to a completely uh, remote control and remote observing. Mm-hmm. We had, still had to send lots of people to telescopes. Oh, I see. You know, there are like, I don't know, 25 people going out, perhaps even more. There are three, four, five people per telescope, mm-hmm. a crew which then take care of that particular telescope. Mm-hmm. And that's a major, major logistic effort. Yeah, cost factor. It's, it's a cost factor. Uh, it's also fun, you know, because people yeah, sitting, they're having, you know, there's some, some days they don't have nothing to do. They, they chat crazy things at the, you know, <laughs> at the telescopes. Uh, then they have to work like three nights in a row uh, with very little sleep, uh, very tiring. So it's an interesting experience. It's a group experience. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the end, you know, it's we need to make this more efficient uh, if we want to make more observations yeah. uh, in the future. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about image reconstruction, right? We we talked about already, you know, you hinted at the fact that the number of um, baselines and their orientation and lengths helps you fill the what's known as the UV plane, right? The, 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 the set of data you have available for reconstructing an actual, if you will, pseudo-optical image. Um, so how, how and, and obviously you, you didn't have that many baselines, right? If you have... Yeah, six sites, then it's whatever, 20 baselines or something. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, a little bit of background. Um, if you calculate mathematically what happens, if you have a normal optical telescope with a mirror, then uh, um, the mirror will actually make an analog Fourier transform of your image before it gets into the focus. Right In the focus, you actually get the image. Yeah. The mirror, you actually have the Fourier transform of uh, the image. So it's another way of saying that that you can see one big mirror as an infinite number of baselines. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so what an interferometer does mathematically is it measures in the mirror plane, so to speak, and it measures the Fourier components of the image. Yep. Yeah. You make a Fourier transform. Yeah, essentially, you know, uh, and, and the, the separation of the baseline is, is uh, are sort of image frequencies. It's yep. not sort of the, the radio frequencies are image frequencies. If you're a short baseline, you measure the uh, low frequencies, so the extended structures of an image, 
the long baselines measure the high frequencies and the sharp structures of the image. So if you have missing information in the Fourier plane, you don't have holes in the image, obviously. You have an ugly mirror. It's like you have yep. scratches on the, in your mirror. Yep. And if you have scratches on the mirror, which means you don't get a perfect point spread function anymore, yep. uh, but the point spread function will be, you know, uh, have all kinds of, of artifacts. And so your image will be the true image convolved with this ugly or dirty point spread function. Yep. And that dirty point spread function can calculate from what information you have not recorded, uh, you know, because you don't have a baseline or not, not a telescope there. Okay. So you can very precisely say what your dirty image is or how a, a, a if you would observe just a point source, yeah. you, know, you know exactly how that point source should look like. On your imperfect, only very few baseline kind of big mirror. Yeah. So, yeah. so what you would do is you take your, your data, this, your data, your correlation, your correlated data is actually the, uh, the Fourier component of the image. You just do an inverse Fourier transform. Right. Uh, where you have some information, the rest is zero, essentially. Yeah. And that point source will not be a point source, will be sort of some ugly things with lots of side lobes and all kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, to test whether it's really a point source, what you observe is that you take that dirty beam or that, that, that beam and s- slowly subtract it from that image. Yeah. That, that's what we call cleaning. So what you say is you, you, you know which parts of the image are a consequence of the bad mirror. Yes. And you know what this bad mirror will create in the image because, because you know how the mirror is bad, right? Yeah. And, and then you, you, you iteratively remove this information. Yeah. You have, suppose you, have a, you, know, you, have, you still have a bright source in the middle, yeah. but you have 10 other points in your image as well. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't know whether they're real. Yeah. Well, right. what you do is you go to the strongest peak, you subtract like 10% of the beam, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah? So the, the central peak becomes a little lower. But you know, because it has side lobes, you know a point source should have had another peaks and other places in that image, yeah. left, right, whatever. These will also be reduced by 10%. Yeah. Yeah? And you, you keep slowly subtracting, subtracting. If nothing is left then, uh, and everything is done perfect, so to speak, then uh, you only subtract from the central peak and all the other side lobes will disappear as well. But and then you know I, I have a point source in, in, in the center. That's the simplest way of how it works. Exactly, because you have to know what you're looking at, right? Otherwise, you don't know what... You, you can't do this forward computation, right? So, in other words, you can only observe things of which you already know how they look, like, for example, a point. That's not really the idea, isn't it? Well, it, it is to some degree. If, if the point source is not a point source but slightly extended, the algorithm actually will, will do it correctly. If the source is not too complicated... Right? It's always a question of how much information you have uh, available. And so you have a number of visibilities that you measure. And if the image is, re- if, if the actual true source component is relatively compact, uh, doesn't have too much uh, detailed information, you can reasonably recover also that, that structure. Why this procedure I just des- described, uh, the cleaning algorithm. Yeah. That's an algorithm that is actually used in VLBI since... I don't know, uh, also 40, 50 years, Hulkbohm developed it. Yeah. Uh, and Barry Clark uh, at the end, uh, for the VLBA actually wrote a, uh, the early uh, clean al- versions. So it's really uh, a long-standing algorithm. And you can actually also mathematically describe it. Uh, it's, it's just a, a standard image deconvolution technique. Yeah. It's one of many image deconvolution techniques that has been used 
long time in, in VLBI. And it does recover, even if you don't know exactly what the point source is, Yeah, you can actually recover it. But, but you do uh, have to know the, the, the general shape, right? For example, the fact that the event horizon, quote, picture is basically this, this donut-shaped shape. Uh, I think you... As, as the way I understand it is you have to know that that's what you're basically looking for based on theory work you did before. No. No, okay. And that, that is, yeah, and that, that's exactly not the case. You have, to, you have to know that the source is relatively, even that you don't have to know. You have to start with a guess. That is true, yeah? Mm -hmm. But that guess, isn't that a, a basically well, the, a kind the, of donut? The, no, 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 no. The guess is it's a Gaussian source, for example. Okay, mm -hmm. So all the, the, the light is sort of uh, relatively compact. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a useful knowledge to, to have if, because you know, the image algorithms work differently. If it were completely extended or many little point sources, um, th this is something that you would have to figure out. But you know, you figure, you know in your calibration, in combined calibration and image reconstruction algorithm, you actually realize at some point that you don't get a good solution. Because I, I told you that the The closure phases and closure amplitudes are actually independent of calibration, mm -hmm. right? And so what in principle you have to do is you have to find an image that fits that measured data, mm -hmm. okay? And definitely not every, uh, every model will fit these closure phase and closure amplitudes that you measure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there is more constraints than just the picture. Absolutely. Right. Uh, well, the, the picture is just a result. Yeah, the no, actual I mean, data are the closure phases and yeah. the closure uh, amplitudes. And you have to find an image that fits that data. Yeah. The problem is that actually this is not always a unique solution. There's e not always yes. a unique solution. That exactly. And that's where I thought um, the knowledge about what you're looking for comes in to disambiguate these different potential solutions. No, the disambiguation comes from having multiple baselines. Okay, so if you yeah. just have one or two baselines, um, just like three, three telescopes as in the early days, you know, this could have been a double source, could have been a ring, could have mm -hmm. been a disk. Mm -hmm. yeah, it would mm -hmm. give you pretty similar signatures. But mm -hmm. the more baselines you have, the more you can exclude these things. Yeah. And so one important aspect that we did in the paper, and it was described very extensively, and people worked really, really hard in the, in the imaging working group uh, on this, was actually doing tests on the imaging algorithms. So what you would do, you would actually do exactly what you, uh, to some degree, said. You would use these different models. You would have a ring, you would mm -hmm. have a disk, mm -hmm. you would have double source, and you would have a GRMHD image. Mm -hmm. um, and you would simulate how that VLBI data would look like, and then you would run the image algorithm on it, and you would take the parameters of the image algorithms, and we'd have actually three different ones, um, that would faithfully reproduce each of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you would get a disk if it's a disk. If it would not have been a shadow, we would have seen that. If it would have been a double source, Uh, we would have recovered a double source. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can fool the algorithms such that you can get an elephant if you want an elephant. Right? No, that's, that's not what I meant. I, what, I, what I wanted to say maybe is that you, in order to get the iterative process to terminate meaningfully and reasonably, it's useful if you start with something that resembles what you're looking for. Oh, it, it, it's definitely useful, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily give you... If, if, if you don't use something that is close to the original with all fitting routines, right? So yep. if, if you don't start with something that is somewhere in the rough direction of where the result has to be, but in this case, it doesn't have to be a ring, 
right? Yeah. You can just start with a Gaussian. In fact, you would start with something that is non-ring-like because yeah. you definitely don't want to put a ring in and get a ring out. That would be you know, a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. No, no, no. Uh, but you have to start with something that you have to assume the flux is relatively con- compact. Mm-hmm. And that's something we knew from earlier measurements already. And, and you can see from the fall-off in the UV plot, yeah. uh, you'd see that the correlated intensities would fall down within a certain uh, within certain baselines, and yeah. you know this has to be more or less compact. Yeah, but that would have been another question I had, right? How do you know you can trust the image if you have so many free parameters? But you just talked about this, right? It, there's basically not too many consistent. Yeah, you look at what you know. You just look at residuals, right? Which fits the data best? That's yeah. the, the the final question. Yeah. And if you would start with the wrong model, uh, and the fit will not converge to a good solution. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and so you see this. And so all the, the, one, the final ones we, we show have actually sort of the best chi-square, so to speak, you know, fit the models really best. But even then, you can have slightly differences. So you will see that we have, you know, in, in this image, there are rings which are slightly, have the symmetry at slightly different locations. Mm-hmm. And they have comparable chi-square, so, you know, minimization values. And so they're equally good. So there's actually quite a range I would not say infinite number, but, you know, a large range of, of images which can equally well fit the data. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of more models which can also fit the data which actually fit it worse. Yeah? And there are many, many, many models which don't fit at all. Right? But, uh, and the ones which, are, which fit well, we cannot statistically distinguish. But they are sufficiently similar so that the, if you will, the point of your observation, which is showing the event horizon with a dark thing in the middle, isn't in doubt. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then essentially, and that's why we, we had actually various approaches. We started with this blind test. We really gave it, uh, we didn't automize it. We give it to people, you mm-hmm. know, just, you know, get something mm-hmm. uh, and do it independently. And then afterwards we compare. And mm-hmm. actually everybody came with, with a ring. Okay. Uh, in the first week. So it was a blind test. I didn't know of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, nice. we then started all over again, uh, which, by the way, meant that, you know, there was not a single person that made the first ever image, right? And it wasn't also made with a single algorithm. Yeah. Uh, we used, like, um, three algorithms, which are all actually were all very well established in the community. Yeah. Uh, there was this one was a clean algorithm yeah. uh, that was used. The other one, these regularizer. These are models which are sort of forward fitting routines yep. essentially take an image and then you, you do you would say you vary the intensity and, and look at how um, how you need to vary it such that the uh, data is properly reproduced and then you add another constraint that's why it's called regularizer you say you, you would like to do, do maximize the entropy in the image for example you would like to have a smooth image yep. so there are some additional constraints you can put because you know we pretty much know this is not going to be an image where everything is just in one point or everything is just spread out. So there are some, there'll be some regularity in the image. Yeah. If you help the fitting algorithm, you say, you know, it should be somewhat regular, so to speak, yeah. that image, then you can actually improve uh, the fitting result. Yeah. Uh, and this maximum entropy is, is a really, really long, long standing algorithm as well. Yeah. That's so- it. Nothing unusual. So yeah, I was going to say. So if I understand you correctly, the 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 image reconstruction was done in the way you typically do it in VLBI or in interferometry more generally. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. First by hand, yeah. but then I think what we did really different. I think 
there's never been an image in VRBI that has been so cross-checked as this one. Right. By so many people, effort has gone into this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said, then we went to this, um, these, these image uh, challenges where you, know, you have the syn- synthetic data sets, which look very different. On the large scale, the UV plot would look very similar. Yep. The details would be, would be different. You'd have ring, a disk, or, or double source. And all the algorithms would have to reproduce uh, all these simulated data equally well. Mm-hmm. And then you would use these parameters that would reproduce these different images well enough and then run on the real data yep. uh, with different algorithms on different days. And all of these then gave very consistent results across different days, across mm-hmm. different algorithms. I think that is the best you can possibly do. Yeah. You just said on different days, uh, different. Uh, so how many... How many different observations, distinct data-taking sessions did you do over the years until you had enough data to do the computation? Uh, well, I mean, we, we never did uh, an experiment before with so many baselines. So in that sense, uh, we, all the data we did before uh, took before we didn't use. We only used the one from this one session, from this one year, from this one magic week in 2017 huh. okay um well except for the previous knowledge that the source is compact right yeah yeah, yeah. that uh, uh from before and we had uh, four different days um april 5 april 6 april 10 april april 11 mm-hmm. four really independent uh, days and about uh, you would observe some a couple of hours. Um, the the actual integrated data is about, on average, two hour per day only. Okay. But spread over like eight hours or so. Okay. The rest you would observe calibrator sources. And yeah. by the way, one other thing we did just to step to to assure that we were not fooling ourselves was that we we took calibrator data three C two seven three three C two seven nine so bright quasars the first quasars ever ever found in fact. Mm-hmm. And we imaged and calibrated those first before we touched any of the M87 data. Mm-hmm. So all the basic uh, improvement on the data was done mainly on, on the calibrator data. And only then we, we opened up the box and looked at M87 mm-hmm. and used then the calibration that we developed for the other source. Mm-hmm. So let's close with the scientific relevance of this observation. Um, uh, if I were skeptical, I would say, or no, skeptical is the wrong word. Um, I, I could say, well, we already know from theory that this event horizon has to exist. So what's the big deal in taking a picture of one, right? <laughs> so so h- how is this and why is this um, actual observation um, a breakthrough is it, is it a breakthrough in observation technique that then enables future work or is that direct observation of the event horizon um is that in itself a huge deal yeah i was going back and forth on this because i i almost thought like you in the beginning i said it's not a big deal mm-hmm. uh because we already all know but no this is the essence of science is really yeah. you know yeah. confirming what yes. we have what we you know. Know, as, as a practice or you know for 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 10 20 years we're running around with our image and we know how it looks like but you know we need to show that it looks like this yeah, right? yeah. 
we what what's the big deal of finding the Higgs? You know, we I was we, about we, to use that comparison exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, have to find it. Yeah, and then then you know it. I mean, otherwise it it remains just fantasy, and you you are not on solid ground. Yeah, then yeah. of course you can make the next step and and go forward and think about it. But also in terms of science, something that we maybe have not stressed enough is, you know, in order to get that shadow, uh, the object has to be within a factor of 1.5 of the Schwarzschild radius. It has to be more compact than one and a half times the, the event horizon scale. So it has to be really, really compact. This is the most compact object we've ever measured. Why, why is that? Why is that? I thought the bigger it is, the easier it is to image because of the lower necessary um, angular resolution. No, it, it's about compactness. How much mass you cram into oh, oh, the I see. How right. much room? Yeah. Right. And in order to get a shadow, and the object has to be smaller than the photon orbit. Yeah. The photon orbit is one and a half, one and a half uh, Schwarzschild radii. You mm-hmm. know, if, if it's in, within a Schwarzschild radius, it's a black hole. Yeah. Uh, the photon orbit is one and a half times, so it has to be within one and one and a half times the the, the size of a black hole. And you could you could still you know squeeze something in which is not exactly a black hole, but this is by far I think the most uh, compact object or the, the compactness that we, we can actually show yeah we can actually make measurements start measuring on the the quadrupole moment um which is uh related to the no hair theorem of 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 black holes which is a very fundamental thing that we can test uh, start testing hmm. by the way even gravitational waves you know don't come much closer than one and a half than the photon orbit mm-hmm. uh, the the event horizon signature is encoded in the ring down signal which is actually very difficult to measure, and it's typically coming from from roughly the same scale. Mm-hmm. You know, you could then you know talk about which one is more is more significant at this point, but that's maybe even a mute point because we're looking at very different scales. Rotation waves look at stellar mass black holes. Yeah. Ten, ten, we're looking at a billion solar masses, and with the galactic center at, at a million solar masses. And uh, GR predicts that it should be the same on all these different masses. It's mm-hmm. a very fundamental test to do. Uh, so yeah, many, many major little steps that we always took for granted because in our fantasy these things were all tested, but they were not. Yeah. I think we're we're now think standing on much more solid ground. Of course, even that measurement has to be re- repeated. Yes, uh, we have to confirm it. You know, sometimes I wake up with a nightmare and say, maybe next time we look at it, it's a square or a triangle or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> ask those <laughs> ask, ask those guys on a different planet to use their telescopes to do the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will actually be interesting to look at it from a different uh, from a different perspective. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> uh, so there's still a lot of science to be done. We'd like to see it moving around. So take a video instead of a picture. Exactly, get a video instead of a picture. In, in the end, we want to go into space, do space interferometry, get really sharp images. Mm-hmm. So it, it is both. I think it is a major breakthrough in the sense that we are now standing on solid ground. We're we're really getting so close to black holes as never before, mm-hmm. testing some of the things we couldn't test. And also being able to move forward and, and get even more deeper tests. Because people, you know, think that something has to go wrong with, with black holes at some point. At some point. <laughs> uh, and where that some point is, we have to find out. Um, maybe there will be, uh, that point will be out of reach forever. I was going to say, do you think this process of looking more detailed, finding more, will ever terminate? It's a very philosophical question, of course. But uh, No, it will never, yeah. obviously. You know, we'll, we'll never reach probably beyond the Big Bang, but we can get as close as True. we can. We'll yeah. never be exactly at the event horizon. It's just that's fundamentally impossible, but yeah. we get as close as possible. Uh, of course, there may be a point in 
in, and I don't think the point is within 10 or 100 years, but maybe in, in, in thousands of years when we will be at a point where, you know, we're not going to learn much by going deeper. It could be that mm-hmm. there is, you know, th- this shadow will be forever a murky region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but maybe not. You know, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah. Uh, what was this Steve Jobs thing? At some point, he said something: "Stay curious" or something. So that's that's what what it's all about in science. <laughs> of course, yes. But all at right. some point, of course, just making things more precise, you know, yeah. is not the most exciting thing anymore. At this point, it's still very exciting if you, because we can make major steps forward. Yeah. And yes. Anything else you want to say in closing before we uh, shut this down? No, stay curious is a good good way to yeah, it is. <laughs> to end. All right. Well then, Heino, thank you very much. This was very interesting and I uh, really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Thanks. Ciao. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again, Heino, for being on the show. I know you've been busy recently because of the EHG observation and the <laughs> fallout. Um, so thank you very much. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget the listener meetup. If you want to come, it doesn't hurt to send me an email. So I know uh, if you've already submitted you know, the form, then don't. Um, otherwise, that's all I had. Um, I think um, I'm going to talk to you in about two weeks. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. Oh my God, so.